Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Uh, continuing on with the next episode of D-Day, we're back to the beach. Everyone wants to go to the beach today. Let's go back and let's, uh, let's see what's going on in uh, Juneau and Sword Beach, okay? During the, uh, you know, the captivating uh, battle for Normandy. Responsibility for taking Juneau Beach fell upon the Canadian Army. <clears throat> and it really, bo- I must add, it really bothers me that, you know, we, we talk, even being American, but we talk too much about the Americans. The Canadians put themselves on the line big time to help to save France um, and stop Hitler, initially, essentially. But uh, the Canadians just seemingly don't get enough credit for this. And it's it's very sad. They lost too many, too many lives. The size and prestige of the American and British armies forces meant that the Canadians have often been neglected in accounts for the Second World War. But just as in the First World War, they faced challenges as great as those of the other allies, displaying every bit as much courage, skill, and tenacity as their comrades in arms. As at the other beaches, the naval forces supporting the operation were also a reminder of the remarkable international nature of the coalition facing Germany. With the Allied fleet, including Canadian, British, Free French, and Free Norwegian vessels, Juneau was one of the more strongly defended beaches. The usual mass of obstacles blocked the way up the beach at the high water mark. Behind them, there were strong points every thousand yards, involving machine gun posts, artillery positions, and bunkers. These were defended by the 716th Static Infantry Division, a unit which was mostly made up of very young or old soldiers, but which was very still considered to be better than average for the division of its type. Panzer forces and Eastern European conscripts were stationed inland. The Juneau landing ran into difficulties before the men even hit the beach. The usual bombardment by air and sea preceded the naval troops. This bombardment included the use of obsolete Candor tank carrying 95mm howitzers and providing covering fire from their landing craft. But the combination of landing vessels and the firing tanks turned out to be far less seaworthy than they had hoped. Scores of them sank, and only six made it to the shore to support the infantry. Meanwhile, a reef off the beach provided an obstacle to all the landing craft. The advance was delayed, and the pilots struggled to coordinate as they crossed the difficult waters. When the infantry hit the beach, they landed amid the obstacles laid out by the Germans. They also arrived without the tank support they had been expecting. As the difficulties at sea meant many of the amphibious tanks and specialist obstacle clearing tanks were held back or never released. Having deposited the troops, the craft were meant to pull out, but they became caught up in in the German defenses, steel obstructions, and mines preventing them from getting out. As more landing craft came in, Mines damaged some, forcing the soldiers inside to get out and wade ashore on their own. 
Of the first 24 landing craft, 20 were lost or damaged. For the whole morning, there was 90 out of 306 faced with rows of obstacles and barbed wire. Under fire from the German troops in their defensive positions, the Canadians began advancing up the beach. Their experience varied hugely from one part of Juneau to another. Some units came under heavy fire and quickly became torn down. Others had an easier time and could get start tackling the obstacles in their way. Meanwhile, the first tanks onto the beach opened fire onto the German strongholds, hoping to destroy tough concrete pillboxes or emplacements that have survived the preparatory bombardment. In some parts of the beach, the Canadians became pinned down by German fire. At the east end, even the 100-yard run from the boats to the corner of the seawall proved costly due to the heavy enemy fire. The shortage of tanks meant that the infantry lacked the heavy support that they needed to advance. They could clear out the Germans and so make the beach safe for obstacles and mines to be cleared with a path created for the vehicles. The troops became backed up on the beach sands for many, many hours. Breakthroughs came in different ways in different places. Commandos risked heavy casualties to rush up the beach and into action. One of the supporting ships came in close to shore and hammered the defenders at the east end of the beach with its guns, providing a way off the beach. Demolition bombs, tanks, and every other heavy weapons took out strong points, though often at a high cost. By the early afternoon, the breakthroughs had been made and the Canadians were engaged with the second line of German defenses, inland from the beach itself. As they advanced, they ran into fresh difficulties. Some units were held back by the loss of equipment on the way to the beach. Supplies had been lost with damaged or destroyed landing craft. Some bulky equipment had been abandoned as men struggled to make it onto the beach, just weighing them down. German snipers played a part. Placed in carefully chosen positions, they began picking off soldiers as they advanced. All the troops that landed on D-Day had to face a choice, whether to tackle isolated snipers and so slow down their advance or to keep moving, letting the snipers remain behind them and accepting the casualties this would likely cause. The Canadians kept moving on past, not letting these isolated assassins pin them down. It was one thing to advance across a beach and through the open fields, It was quite another to face the enemy in the coastal villages that dotted the landscape. These provided defensive positions for the German troops, with plenty of cover and hiding places. At Corcel, street fighting bogged down the advance through most of the afternoon. At Saint-Aubin, it took three hours to drive out the last Germans. At Benair, half an assault company was lost in the 100-yard advance from landing points to the village, and the enemy clung tenaciously to their position until they were eventually outflanked. At Talleville, tanks advanced through the village, smashing German positions, but they hadn't counted on the complicated network of encampments the defenders had built underneath the village. 
the Germans used these bunkers to repeatedly outflank the Canadian infantry. It was only after seven hours of fighting the village was cleared. Having fought their way off the beaches, the Canadians went on to make up the deepest advances of D-Day in that day. Follow-up units moved past the tired troops of the first landing waves and used the routes they had established off the coast. Pushing on to their objectives, they got seven miles inland, further than any other of the Allied troops. They reached the road between Bayo and Caen, a critical artery for traffic in the region, and got within three miles of Caen, where they linked up with the British 50th Division. Meanwhile, the assault troops around the beaches mopped up the remaining German resistance. Snipers continued to harass the Canadians until nightfall, by which time they were left isolated far behind Allied lines. As night fell, Canadian forces dug in along a line inland from Juneau Beach. Their landings had been among the most successful of D-Day. Despite the ineffectiveness of the preparatory bombardment of the heavy losses taken in some parts of the beach, they had, they had sustained around 2,000 casualties in return. They had smashed the German formations facing them, broken through the Atlantic Wall and its defensive formations, and linked up with the British at one end of their line. Things were only going to get tougher for those Canadians. Their achievements and those the British to their east were drawing the attention was to the Germans. There would be no easy advance on Khan. So let's move on to Sword Beach. Sword Beach, the easternmost of the landing zones, was one of the British targets. Lying closest to the city of Khan, it was a vital anchoring point for Montgomery's strategy for following the weeks. It was also the only sector of the, the line that would most obviously demonstrate the overambitious nature of Allied goals for D-Day. Sword had the same sort of defenses as on the other beaches. The Allies landed on landmines, stakes, and concrete blocks. Designed to stop tanks advancing, all littered the flat, open beach, interdispersed with occasional pillbox defense emplacements. Behind, the, behind that were 20 strong points, some containing artillery, machine guns, and snipers were installed in former tourist homes lining the shore. What made this part of the line was different than German reserve forces based near Khan. Nine miles from Seward, the 21st Panzer Division, a 16,000-strong force of tanks, mobile troops, and anti-tank troops, held positions either side of the, the River Orne. If they could be mobilized and brought to the fight, they could make a huge impact on the British advance. The, the aerial and naval bombardment of the defenses Sword Beach began at 3, 3 o'clock a.m. The effort was concentrated around Hermanville-sur-Mer, where the landing craft could most easily reach the beach. As the Allied bombardment pounded the German positions, troops started heading to the beach. In the forefront, there were the tanks, including the specialist vehicles. The British referred to them as funnies, such as the mime destroyers and flamethrowers they had blown up. A mile from the beach, German shells started hitting the landing craft. The craft pressed on. 
in, in quite the dramatic style. A burglar sounded the uh, general salut as he passed the command ship. The British had an incredibly detailed plan for the waves of troops to hit the beach. First would come the amphibious tanks at 7.25 a.m. Five minutes later, landing craft would deposit specialist engineering tanks into the shallows where they were to emerge onto the beach. The first wave of infantry would arrive seven minutes later and the next 13 minutes after that and so on through the early hours of the landing. The operation got off to a good start. The first waves arrived on time. A mortar and machine gun fire raised down around them. Sapper set to work demolishing obstructions. Flail tanks whipped the sand, safely setting off mines before anyone was close enough to be caught in the blast. The specialist tanks also showed they could be useful in a more general role, using their guns to take out German gun emplacements. Some of the first men off the boats were hit immediately, but these formations who took point didn't suffer as heavy heavy casualties as, as others who followed behind, pushing past them to launch advances into the face of enemy fire. The mine-clearing tanks began using their flails when they could hit the high water mark and kept going until they were off the beach. This clearing paths for others to follow. Amphibious tanks cleared the beach of any tough positions and then drove up to the dunes where they became involved in heavy, heavy man-to-man combat fighting. Despite the successful start, a schedule as complex as the British landing one inevitably began to fall behind. There was no way every wave could land on time in the face of opposition. The beach became clogged with men, vehicles, and wreckage. Throughout the day, German mortars and artillery from further inland bombarded the men waiting to get off the sands and into action. Meanwhile, a single courageous French girl waded into the blood-stained waters and helped wounded soldiers out of the shallows. Despite German resistance, the beach secured sword beats in less than an hour and headed inland with remarkable speed. By nine in the morning, the men of the, of the 1st Battalion South Lancashire Regiment were over a mile inland at Hermanville. Montgomery's aim for this force was focused on Khan. They were to advance to the city, engaged with the Panzer forces there, and hold them over the following days, while the Americans secured the Cotin Peninsula. This meant a speedy advance to ensure the Panzers were fully occupied. So commando units of men of the East Yorkshire Regiment set out for the beach to take Alstrom and Lyon-sur-Mer. Tanks rushed from the coast to pre-planned rendezvous points, past shocked Germans cowering in shell holes, through they had fought their way through for the first line, they still faced much, much opposition. Snipers forced at exposed men, German guns of the 176th Artillery Regiment, rushed up to launch a counterattack at Lyon-sur-Mer. The counterattack at Lyon was briefly successful. The British had not yet brought up the heavy weapons and so were very vulnerable to the German artillery. The Germans captured at a group of British prisoners and were amazed at the quality of their supplies compared with those in block, the blockaded Germany. 
but the success was short-lived. The Allies brought up more troops and the Germans were pushed back. Their levels of success surprised the British troops. They had been trained to fight on the beaches. Now they were inland, facing different conditions from those they had trained about. The success was gratifying, but at times quite overwhelming. At 11 a.m., troops began gathering for the advance to take Khan. The initial force was meant to consist of the Second King's own Shropshire Light Infantry Division and a group of tanks from the Staffordshire Yeometry. The, the KSLI gathered on an orchard outside of Lyon, threw away their no longer needed maps and the area around the beach. They marched to Hermanville to meet the tanks. But the tanks were stuck in an unexpectedly high tide combined with many support vehicles on the beach had obstructed their advance. And an hour later, the group was meant to set out. The KSLI started marching for Khan alone with the tanks set to catch up later. Meanwhile, other German troops were fighting to take out the two German strongholds labeled Morris and Hillman. Hillman for, provided particularly tough, and the 1st Battalion of the Suffolk Regiment took heavy casualties there. Looking for a way to take the position, an engineer discovered tanks could only safely be uh, across from minefields. The vehicles also used changes to breach the defenses, leading to the strong points capture. The KSLI fought a series of small but fierce engagements as they advanced toward Khan. Late in the afternoon, now accompanied by some of the promised tanks, they reached Beville and again overwhelmed German, Germans, this time through a flanking maneuver. There it was, at Lesby Wood, that the British advance on Khan stalled. The first foundations of the German 21st, 21st Panzer Division joined the fight. The leading company of the KSLI took heavy casualties, including the boss of their commander. Under heavy fire, they halted around 6 p.m. and dug in for the night. The leading company pulled back, engaging from the Germans to take their own shelter with the rest of their regiment. On a hill above Lesby, the Germans' general, Marux, saw that while they had halted the advance on Khan, the situation was still dire. The Allies had landed in force and were pouring more troops into their bridgehead. Precisely, he said that the British could not be thrown back to the sea. Germany would lose the war. So he launched a counterattack. So led by Max himself, a German panzer formation rushed north across the open land heading for the gap between the British and Canadian landing forces. If he could exploit that weak point, maybe he could drive the invaders back. It was a desperate and ineffective gamble as the Germans reached the Sherman tanks of the Staffordshires on a hill near the Khan Road. They immediately lost 13 of their own tanks. By the time they reached the the Lyon-sur-Mer, only a fragment of Marek's original force remained. Seeing Allied gliders coming onto the east, they feared that they would be encircled. They withdrew from Khan. The result was one of, of mixed fortunes. The British hoped to take Khan for the first day. It was a strategically important objective. 
and now it was defended by the remains of Marek's force. On the other hand, the German force lost 70 out of 124 tanks in their futile counterattack, severely weakening the defensive formation. With minimal tank and artillery support, taking Khan on the first day was never a realistic objective for the KSLI. Given the Panzer forces in the vicinity, it may never have been possible or plausible for the British at all. At Sword, as was the other landing zones, D-Day ended with key aims unfulfilled. The Allies had achieved an extraordinary thing, securing a beachhead in Normandy in the face of Rommel's carefully prepared defenses. But the Germans had fought well. As night fell and the two sides dug in, the question became, where do you go from here? So that is Greg Perry, the historic preservationist here. And uh, we're talking about Sword Beach and, uh, you know, the, uh, how the Canadians landed there and, uh, you know, continued uh, with, with Juno. So uh, the Canadians on Juno and Sword Beach. So uh, that's D-Day and I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll continue next time um, with talking about the French uh, on D-Day, uh, La Resistance.